Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And I don't know, do we have a theme today? We we're, we're, we're sort of globetrotting. Okay, we're globetrotting. So, and so we're right. going to start with we're a globetrotting expedition. We're already planning. And um, it's a major globetrotting event for people all around the world. Right. And the, the, the person we're going to be talking to is J.P. McMahon, who is the uh, the, um, uh, the founding... He's the convener or whatever you call it, yeah, the founder of, of FOT. Host of Food on the Edge, which is affectionately referred to as FOT. And, and, and you, it's in Galway, Ireland, and but, but, but it's one fun conference. But J.P.'s in Toronto. We never did ask him why. Right. <laughs> anyway, anyway, here he is. J.P. McMahon, I can't keep up with your various titles. How do you want to be identified on this phone conversation? Oh, just as J.P. is fine. <laughs> you have restaurants. You are the uh, food ambassador for Ireland, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you are the, you spearheaded and you run what we're going to be talking about today, which is Food on the Edge. Otherwise, affectionately known and more concisely put, FOAT, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Okay, now you started this. What was the purpose of starting this uh, conference, which is what it is, an international conference? I suppose it, it had two purposes. One was to, uh, was to bring uh, world-class chefs of, 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 uh, who were changing their, their culture from all over the world to bring them to Ireland to inspire uh, Irish people. And the other one was to, uh, was to showcase Ireland to them and also to the people who were, who were coming to the conference. I suppose in the last 15 or 20 years, Irish food has, uh, has developed in a, in, a, in, a, in a great way and it has a certain confidence now. And I suppose I wanted to try and showcase that, uh, that to the world. And you are, you're doing that, and it is wonderful. Uh, this will be our second year, but how many years have you been going? The thought. This is our fifth year. Fifth year. Yeah, this is our fifth year, and uh, now it's, uh, we've, I suppose we bring approximately 50 speakers every year, so we've had about 250 over the last five years, and it, it creates a wonderful legacy, but also a great network, network. of people that have met each other, acted on the edge, and who have kept in contact, whether they are people who attend the conference or people who speak at the conference. And there's some wonderful friendships and relationships have started at Food on the Edge that continue, uh, that continue on. So that, that's a lovely aspect of it. Right. Now, um, it's the, for the record, 2019 Food on the Edge, the dates are? Are the 21st and the 22nd of October. Okay. And... How do people find information on what's going to be happening and how they might want to attend? So everything is online on our website, uh, foodontheedge.ie, and you can buy uh, one-day tickets, you can buy a two-day ticket, uh, you can stay, uh, all the hotels are uh, online as well, and you can stay uh, stay locally. The conference is on in the, in the university again this year, so it's about a kilometer from... Uh, from uh, from the city centre, and we have different events planned on the Monday and the Tuesday night. So uh, people attending and attending the conference can also engage with the kind of culture of Galway in terms of its music and its food, and also meet all the different speakers. 
I love I love Galway. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I probably it's a, very, it's a very bohemian. Yeah, it's a very bohemian city, and it's it, culturally, it's. Uh, I like I'm from Dublin originally. We came to Galway in '99, about 20 years ago, and I, it, the art uh, scene has, has always attracted me to uh, to Galway. Right. I mean, I guess the first place we went was Dublin, but uh, Galway was a revelation, and uh, we we love it. Uh, what is the theme this year for the conference? The theme this year is, is migration, and so I suppose it's quite fitting concerning the different issues that we have at the moment in terms of uh, not only people traveling, but also how food travels. And I think food is very much wrapped into our identity as as people and so sometimes we get very concerned about like where our food is going and who who owns our food and where if someone else is cooking it and so these are some of the issues that I wanted to try and explore this year um and I suppose considering as well that we have a we have a, a lot of immigration at the moment not only not only in terms of you guys in the states but also in Europe and people traveling from uh, Africa and the Middle East into Europe and and that, and that changes food culture as well. I suppose people resettle and they start new things and that affects how people eat. And I suppose I wanted to try and think about food as a wider cultural experience uh, rather than just sitting down to eat in a restaurant. Well, I mean, oh, Brexit people, is, is, is a bit of a mess at the moment. Um, but, uh, and it's unfortunate. And, and that, that, that is all about migration as well and about immigration and about borders wanting to be closed. But I think more so than ever before, it's it's really important that we we keep our borders as open as possible because I mean personally I feel we have so much space uh, not only in Ireland but we have a lot of space for for any amount of people that need to travel and I think uh, I think food is a wonderful vehicle to look at that and to see how even if you in the context of Brexit you can see how how British food changed with the different ways of of migration oh, that, yes. that came to England and. It's true all over the uh, world, too. It's true. Yeah, and we have Rami Gill coming this year. Yeah, Rami Gill is a a British Indian chef who who is, is, I suppose, looks exactly at that. And uh, her her food is is inspired by her Indian culture. But as I say, she is British and uh, she she looks into that uh, as as well. And And so there's always a a kind of duality to, to food. How do how do you persuade some of the chefs who are coming, for example, all the way from Melbourne or Sydney, Australia, and you, and you have some people coming I've, from Africa? Yeah, we have Ben Shrury, and it's wonderful to have Ben over, and Mark Best is coming back, and I suppose it's it, it, two things. One, I mean, they really love Ireland, and that's and that's a wonderful thing, is that is, that has less to do with me. I mean, Ireland has a has a wonderful image around the world, as I suppose as a as a as a place of great hospitality. On the other side, it's, it's, it's myself just, um, I was constantly, uh, uh, contacting, uh, these chefs, such as Ben, and asking them over the last couple of years that I'd love to have you in Ireland, I'd love to bring you over to inspire some of our own chefs, some of our own industry. And, uh, and, and it's just, it's great to bring Ben over because, I mean, for me, for me, Ben is, uh, is a great educationalist and, uh, he, he, he cares about the future of the industry and I think that's, uh, that's what's really important. Now, who are some of the other guest chefs coming? Oh, so we have, like, I mean, in terms of the, I suppose, the, the top flight, we have Alex Atala coming this year. He's down, from, from Brazil, and exactly. And I've been asking Alex for many years now to come, and finally he's been able to slot it in. Leonora Espinosa from, uh, from Colombia. 
Uh-huh. And you know, there's a it's doing amazing stuff, uh, uh, stuff there as well. But I mean, we have chefs coming from so many different places. Like we have fifty in total, and we really try and look into places that people uh, don't know as much about as well. And so we we have. Uh, we have different chefs coming from Africa and India this year as well that I think will, uh, I think that will get us to think about food uh, globally and get us to try and think about the, the wider, I suppose, significance of food, you know. Right, and, and just give us a, a sampling of some of the topics. Uh, oh, God, uh, like, I mean, the, the interesting thing about it, and, and you'll know this as well from talking to chefs, is that chefs don't all, uh, always talk on point. And, and so rather than tie them all down to the one team, which we have found before, sometimes they tell you they're going to talk about one thing and they end up talking about something else. So what we've allowed them to do is to, is to draw on previous teams. And so some of the chefs are coming over and they're talking about their food story. Um, or they might be talking about a certain action that they have, they have done in relation to, um, to, uh, to their, I suppose their own food culture and that. And so we have, while the the main theme of migration is the is I suppose the umbrella uh, for the for the event, we have different uh, sub teams, and we also have master classes this year with uh, Matt Orlando and Doug McMaster uh, returning again because the issue of food waste is something that is uh, yeah. that is central. Yeah, we to went our, to one to of those time. last year, I think, didn't we? We I did, think. yes, yes. Yeah, we did yes. food waste and, one last and, uh, year. And it was it was so oversubscribed in terms of so many people who want to, I suppose, want to engage with that. And I think it's it's really important, and it, it very much ties into uh, issues of climate change and, and 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 other things. And so, I mean, waste is always going to be there, and 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 sustainability. They're always going to be at the forefront of uh, of some of the issues that we have to deal with. And and you know, there's plenty of socializing and eating and drinking that goes on. Am I right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the socializing is very, very important. And we have a speaker's dinner when they arrive on the Sunday. Very casual affair. But for me, it's the hospitality that is the main, the main point. I mean, food is there to be eaten and to be enjoyed. And we want the speakers to, to relax. And then we have a, a dinner and some music on Monday night. And then on Tuesday night, we have a, a rap party where we have um, uh, all of the people at the symposium. Uh, come to uh, come to it. So it's a it's a it's a great um, a great event. Is, is the speakers' dinner? Is that the one that's at the King's Head? Yeah. So this year we're having it in the college. Um, the speakers' dinner. So the, oh, okay. the the local college are are sponsoring the dinner. So we're we're going to try and get the chefs to work with the students as well. So it's another um, it's another uh, another uh, aspect of I suppose of trying to grow the conference. Um, so it's, it's important for us every year to try and take stock of what we have done the year before and to develop it. And, and the theme of education is important. And so we're always trying to say, well, how do we engage with that a little bit more? And so that this was one idea this year where, where three chefs uh, who are cooking for the speakers, uh, Matt Orlando, uh, Sasu Lelconen and Doug McMaster, are cooking a kind of no-waste uh, meal. And um, uh, the chefs, the, the local chefs, are going to uh, facilitate them. Well, no, I, no, I think the camaraderie is just brilliant there. I, no, mean, no, I think it's because it's Ireland, <laughs> but chefs also, they love networking like this and getting to know each other. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah it's really nice. and it, 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 It's wonderful when, the, when you get two chefs who, uh, who have uh, never met before 
and they made it through in the edge. And it's, it's lovely to see that relationship continue after Food in the Edge. So it's, it's really nice to hear um, from chefs that, oh, uh, we met at Food in the Edge and now we're collaborating over something. And so that's, for me, that's one of the, one of the, uh, uh, one of the most joyous aspects of Food in the Edge is creating, uh, occasions that actually go on way beyond Food in the Edge. Now, is, is this different than the, Maria from, from the PR firm said there's a welcome dinner at the King's Head on Sunday. Is that, that's not the same as the speaker's yeah. dinner. Yeah, so we will have the welcome dinner, uh, this year, uh, is on at the King's Head again. But the, it's the, the chef's dinner is on, and on, uh, on Monday night, the, the, the speaker's dinner. Oh, that's Monday night. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to this as usual. How's the weather there right now? It is, uh, it's not raining a lot, but it is raining. Uh, so, I mean, you would expect that in Ireland. Um, so, uh, but hopefully, look, we always get a little bit of sun in, um, in, in October. And so hopefully the sun will be shining, uh, in the last, uh, one of the last weeks of, uh, of, of October. I remember it did last year. It, it did. Was, was a pleasure. Miraculous. <laughs> yeah, we've been, we've been so lucky. I mean, as one, someone called it Costaville Galway, uh, one year, they said they came over and they didn't realize the sun. But sometimes we have better weather in October than we have in July, so it's, uh, it's kind of ironic. Well, well, thank you for talking to us about it, and I think that, uh, I mean, I've, I've really been talking it up with people I've run into who I think would enjoy this conference. I mean, of all the conferences lately that I've gone to, I really think I love folk more than anything. Let, 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 let me Wonderful. highlight. Well, that's great to hear. Let me highlight one chef for you that I I think you you would enjoy and you would be stimulated by. His name is Josh Nyland, and he has oh, a. Josh is amazing. Yeah. He, has a, he has a restaurant. Josh, Josh is uh, what Josh is doing with with fish at the moment is absolutely at the okay. forefront. So, of, so uh, you know you know you know him already, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I met Josh last year and. Um, uh, yeah, it's really great to bring Josh. It's really great to have other chefs cont- contact me and say, "Oh, I like uh, to, that they're really looking forward to see to see Josh at the at the event." So uh, Josh just uh, had his book out, and it's uh, it's a really great book in terms of trying to take take more out of fish and to to you to utilize different aspects of it and to treat it as uh, I suppose as we should. Now, can you can you guess why we picked his restaurant to go to in Sydney? It's really, not, it's really not hard. It's called, it's called Saint, it's called Saint Peter. <laughs> That's why we went because it was called Saint Peter's. <laughs> oh, Saint Peter! Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a it's, it's, it's a great, it's a, it's a great, uh, and the little uh, fish butchery shop uh, next door is is really great. Yeah. Well, well, JP Saint Saint JP, it was, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We look forward to talking to you again very soon in Galway. Thank you so much again, guys. Hey, we, we finished the recording, but I wanted to ask you, did you get my uh, tweet about... Um Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. 
Our next guest is a person you could talk to for hour upon hour upon hour and always learn something new. He has so many talents and so much, uh, such a broad area of expertise. Today we're going to be talking him particularly about, um, he's very knowledgeable in slow fermentation vinegars. And we're going to talk to him about that, the process, and also a particular company in Spain called OMED that does this with vinegars and oils. Here's Harry Rosenblum. Uh, One of the great wonders of the world happens to be Philosophy Foods, and they sent samples of something called OMED Slow Fermentation Vinegars and more, and we ended up in touch with Harry Rosenblum, who is the founder of the Brooklyn Kitchen, and absolutely an expert on slow fermentation vinegars, as it happens. <laughs> How about that, Harry, <laughs> for an interview? <laughs> Let's talk, first of all, what are we talking about? What is a slow fermentation vinegar? And also put it in the context of Spanish production and OMED. Sure. Um, so thanks, Anne, for having me on on the menu. Slow fermented vinegar, historically all vinegar was slow fermented. So in Orleans and France and in Asia, the way that vinegar was made was you took an alcohol, like say a wine, which would be, you know, which a lot of the vinegars in front of you, the OMEDs are made from wine. Is this Orleans method, as you're telling me, that what we're talking about is Orleans method? Um, no, so uh, they don't use the Orleans method, but historically, to give it context, the Orleans method was that you took your wine or your alcohol base, you inoculate it with the acetobacter, the bacteria that converts the alcohol into acetic acid to create vinegar, and you leave it alone, and you just let it sit there. Mm-hmm. That takes anywhere from six weeks to six months, depending on where you are in the world, depending on what you're starting with, depending on the strength of your, your bacterial strain. So for production purposes, as the world got faster and things moved faster, that's a little slow to have to sit on this product for such a long time. People started to uh, create different methods, and all the way up until now, now, in the modern age, most vinegars are created in a matter of days. You have a giant stainless steel uh, tank with a uh, basically a, you have a, a thing in the bottom that's swirling it around. They're pumping in pure oxygen because the bacteria need oxygen, and you can make thousands of gallons of vinegar in 36 to 48 hours. But it's not as good. And, it, and it's not as good, exactly. What you, what you sacrifice is you sacrifice flavor. Um, but you end up with a much faster-to-market product. OMED is using a process called the Schutzenbach method, and it was developed in Germany in the middle of the 19th century, sort of as industrialization was starting to happen. And it was right at the same time that we started to have things like microscopes and start to understand a little bit more about microbes and about bacteria, and and, and science was really exploding. And so it became clear that oxygen was a key ingredient here. Uh, in the past, it was kind of like, oh, you leave it alone, this thing happens. Nobody knew the oxygen was part of it because you had no vessels that could keep oxygen out, right? Everything was being done in oak barrels. The wood itself is oxygen permeable, so you couldn't keep the oxygen away mm-hmm. from, the, from the liquid completely like you can now with things like glass and plastic. So what they figured out, the Schutzenbach method, basically is a way to make more oxygen available to the bacteria. 
And what they did is they built these giant columns that looked like barrels. They were maybe 15, 20 feet high, maybe 8 or 10 feet across, and they stuffed it full of wood shavings. And what they did is they poured the wine that they were trying to convert into vinegar with bacteria in it over the wood shavings, and it would trickle down. There were holes drilled in the sides of these columns to allow airflow, and then it would collect in the bottom, and somebody would have to fill a bucket and climb a ladder Good and grief. pour it back in the top. <laughs> but what they discovered is oh that you could make great vinegar this way instead of waiting three months. You could do it in two or three weeks. And it maintained a very similar flavor, in fact. And because you were basically able to do it and then you were in a production environment where you were then testing it, tasting it, and then bottling it, you had a much more consistent product. When you leave your vinegar in a barrel in the old Orleans method, over time, you lose product to evaporation. You can potentially have other microbes, molds, and things that can grow and give you off flavors. Um, so Schutzenbach was really the first industrialized process that sped up what was a much older process, but now we look at it and it's really, it is a slow process that sort of hits a perfect middle ground that allows for production of very high quality vinegar in a controlled environment, but isn't sped up so fast that you're losing the flavor of those original grapes. Is that somebody's name, Schutzenbach? Whatever. The Schutzenbach is the name of the person who did the That's right. This is, this is the guy. He was a, wasn't the guy, was the guy, I guess. And, and what is yep. it? Is it important what kind of wood is used? You know, historically, I think they used whatever they had around. Probably oak that they had been. You know, they had lots of oak shavings from shaving staves for barrels and things like that. Um, I've heard of it being done with um, cedar shavings um, in the OMED process. They're actually not using wood because it is a more modern process. What they have are these, uh, I don't know how to describe them, they look kind of like giant jacks, you know, the game you play with a ball, yeah, those sure. little pieces of metal. Basically, they're like that, um, and they fill up the column on the inside, and of course, no one has to climb a ladder anymore either with a bucket. <laughs> they have a pump, so they're cycling the vinegar from the bottom up and pouring it over the top of these things, but, you know, same idea is that what you're doing is you are giving the bacteria an incredible access to oxygen molecules which allows the bacteria then to convert that liquid into vinegar much faster. Wow. Okay. So do these actually are, the OMED is made actually in Catalonia, right? Uh, yes. It's made in uh, Laredo is the name of the, of the town, north of Barcelona. Yeah, I just found the, this name written out, Schultenbach. Okay. Um you know, there's somebody we interviewed who still does something in the United States using the Orleon method. Somebody in the Southwest or California. Um, I know that Albert Katz, who makes wonderful vinegars in Napa, is using uh, the Orleans method. Um, and his vinegars are, are absolutely spectacular. Um, you know, but it can take him six months, eight months, a year uh, to get a finished product, which, of course, means that the, the vagaries of production, while his product is incredible, yes. uh, it also comes with a higher price tag. How much would it cost? Um, you know, his vinegars, I would have to double check, um, but I think, you know, some of them are pushing into probably $20, $30 for 500 milliliters. Wow. And, and not that they're not worth it. I mean, don't get me wrong, Albert. I know Albert. He's, he's what are they called? Who is it? Albert who? Albert Katz, K-A-T-Z. Hey. Yeah, well, that's not who I, we interviewed. 
Latorigel is oils, right? What's the uh, I, Latour, Yes, Latorigel makes oils, for sure. What about the uh, Austrian um, thing that somebody imports? Well, there, there is an Austrian company that made... What about the guy who's that made daughter? Cu- made cucumber vinegar. There's Gegenbauer. Gegen, yeah, Gegen, that's it. You, that's, who well, is that? That's the, Aust- that's the Austrian one. Yep. Yeah. There was one called... Round, well, it wasn't Round Pond, but it was something pond. Round Pond? Round Hill, Round Hill Pond? Maybe. Yeah, okay. But that's here. That's the one that's in California. Yes, in California. Yeah, do you that know was, about that? Good, that was good stuff, too. They're excellent. Did you... Uh, and the, the same kind here. Okay. Uh, all right. So this is what we're talking about with the OMED things. They say that the grapes come from uh, local vineyards, right? Yep. And, uh, of course, the, the thing that's interesting is that they have different um, different wines. I mean, you have the Chardonnay, which is aged 12 months in French oak barrels, right? Yep. And you have Cabernet, the same thing, uh, cider, is that aged as well? I don't know. Um, I don't believe the cider is aged. I think that it's made more like a, you know, like a, a, a Spanish cider, um, you okay. know, where it's fresher um, and, you know, probably a little bit, you know, that, that cider, I imagine, I haven't tasted the original product because they really are not, they're not making vinegar as a side project of being a vineyard. They're focused on making vinegar from really great product that they start from. Really? Um, so I, I think sometimes you find that wineries will make vinegar out of wine that maybe isn't hitting all of the uh, all of the flavor profile that they're looking for in in their vintages. Um, whereas Omed is really making wine because of what it's going to taste like when it ends up as vinegar. I mean, some of the, like this Cava one, uh, it says it's made of the classic trio of grape varieties for Cava: Masabe. Zenea and Perry, what's the last one? Perrier. Anyhow, there, and then there's Rosé and Muscatel. Yep, the Muscatel one I love. Excellent. Okay, and, and what else should we know about them? Well, I think one of the things that I, that I really like about them is that um, across the entire line, they represent a really great cross-section of vinegars that display the flavor of the original product. So, you know, there's been lots of talk in recent years about apple cider vinegar, and everybody is super into, you know, I take a shot of it in the morning, or I, you know, use it in, in all this stuff because it has all these, you know, important, people theoretically important uh, uh, probiotic qualities, which are valuable and certainly good, but to be honest, I think that there's a whole other world, and especially when you start thinking about vinegar as an ingredient that you're going to use in your cooking, just having apple cider vinegar in your pantry is very limited. Yeah. So well, of course, now it's to... big on the cocktail, um, sir. Yes. Vinegar is. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you start to really be thinking about flavor, I mean, things like cocktails uh, or in what you're going to use for cooking, the opportunity to choose from a cider or something that's a Chardonnay or something that's going to be much stronger, like a Cabernet Sauvignon vinegar, uh, is, you know, is really great. And the fact that people now have access to that, because it is not that common uh, to see a single producer making all of these different varieties of vinegar and making them all available. Right, and they have a, a Pedro Jimenez too. Yes, I can see that as a drinking sh- a shrub kind of thing, right? 
Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, you know, that one that one is coming from a you know coming from a sherry, um, and then there's a sherry vinegar. You know, in in my book, Vinegar Revival, you know, I I talk about encouraging people to try making just about every kind of vinegar at home except for sherry vinegar and balsamic. I don't think people should make those. Oh, well, balsamic would take you forever, right? Well, exactly. I mean, unless you're going to live forever and have very deep pockets, I think you might as well. Or if your grandmother started in her attic. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so your book that you're going to be sending us is really about how we can make it ourselves at home? So the first third of the book is about vinegar as a, you know, vinegar as a product and how to make it at home, Um, either starting from making your own beer, cider, wine, that kind of thing, or just buying one that you like to drink. And then the rest of the book, about two-thirds of it, is more than 50 recipes for things you would think about for vinegar, like salad dressings and pickles, and then things maybe some people, you know, probably listeners of your show have already been using vinegar for, like cocktails, desserts. Um, you know, a lot of main dishes and side dishes that use vinegar. Important, in important things. Ways. Important things like descaling the coffee maker. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you'd use these for descaling the coffee maker. Yeah, I, I would not recommend using the muscatel vinegar for that. Although your coffee would probably taste pretty good. Now the, there is there is there is this funny old-fashioned drink that's made with cider. That the, the, the Pilgrim Fathers are, used to drink when they were going out into the fields. What's it called? Yep. I don't know. What's it called? Uh, so that's, you're, I think you're talking about, uh, you're talking about Switchel. Switchel, yeah. Switchel, I yep. forgot about and that. Switch, yeah. Switchel's really cool. Oh, Switchel, Switchel's great, and we're just getting into the, the season when Switchel is really great to keep around because you can batch it and keep it in your refrigerator, and it is really so refreshing. There's a, I mentioned in my book, but I came across Switchel... Uh, it was, you know, right around the time I was working on writing the book, I was also reading the Little House on the Prairie books to my daughter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in that book, they talk about Ma makes this drink with vinegar and honey and in it mm. because they're working out in the fields, and if they just drank plain water, it would upset their stomachs. <laughs> right. Now, we got, we got some from, from somewhere... And they they sent us Switzerland, but they all they also sent us a constant a concentrate. Mm. So right. so so you could pour some of that in your glass and then and then impregnate it with sparkling water, and that was really that's really ref- amazingly refreshing. Absolutely. Well, Harry, we're going to get your book and talk to you more about this uh, vinegar issue here. Uh, is there anything else we should say about Omed? Um, I think. That, uh, you know, one of the things that I really, that I really love about their vinegars is that they're not so precious. It's not like buying a bottle of balsamic that, you know, is going to cost you, yeah, you know, know. over a hundred dollars and you're going to want to, I mean, it's worth it and it's delicious, but you're going to want to use it drop by drop. But the that's the nice comes of the eyedropper. I mean, I have, I have yeah. a bottle that we bought probably 10 years ago for over 100, 125 or something. Sure, sure. A small um, bottle. But, <laughs> but the Omeds are not, you know, they're not, they're not so precious that you can't use them in something and you can't cook with them or use them in a, in a dressing in a way that you would think about using, you know, any, any old vinegar, I guess, is what I would say about them. Um, and, you know, for any chefs that are listening, they're also available in food service size. Oh, that's a good thing to know. Yeah, yeah. Because these are we just got sample kits. 
so I didn't know. Well, Harry, you know a lot about vinegar, I must say, and I thank you for t- taking the time and trouble to explain it to us. Absolutely, anytime. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back in touch, and we'll be talking about your book next. Great. Well, I will have a copy of it sent over to you. Thanks, Harry. Again, Thanks. Um, we're talking OMED, um, long or slow fermentation vinegars. Thanks, Harry Rosenblum. Take care, Anne. Thank you. Now, dear listeners, we're going to jump um, from Spain to Sicily, Sicilia, uh, talking about a very special product from our friends at Gustiamo that listen to be three tell us about capers, capri. Beatrice. Yes, dear. Uh, from yes. Gustiamo, you are a joy. You have the best products, and our latest experiences with you have to do with a very interesting little berry called a caper. Caperi. Caperi, and also with the the caper berry from Pantelleria. Pantelleria Island. Yes, and uh, which I fell in love with. They're so infinitely better than. Let's get basic. First of all, let's talk about where is Pantelleria. Pantelleria is a small island off the coast of Sicily, which is almost flat as an island, wind-swept, beautiful uh, sea and beautiful rustic land. And they produce several things. Is yeah, still I thought, yeah. What else? Be- they do, of course, uh, grapes, uh, very sweet grapes out of the Pantelleria Island and then they are they also have some productions of uh, dairies with uh, uh, with sheep on the island so it's kind of uh, it's a touristic island of course but there is also farming we've never been and we've been to Sicily a lot as you know how difficult is it to get there there is an airport that goes from Trapp I do not know from what other cities you can land in Pantelleria, but certainly from Trapani, you go to Pantelleria by airplane. It's a short ride. And you can stay overnight. Oh, yes. There are uh, hotels, and uh, there is a, uh, they also have agriturismo there. Oh, wow, yeah. Yes, a particular construction in Pantelleria called Dammuso. Mm-hmm. Which is like what uh, in, in Puglia they say masseria. So it's a it's a local construction. So they rent out uh, these dammusi, beautiful uh, uh, Arab uh, vault ceilings. Uh, oh wow! Arab Arab influence. Because yeah, go ahead. The capers. Uh, the why you were asking why? How did we get to the capers of Pantelleria? The capers of Pantelleria are really very special. They are famous, in Italy at least, to be the most capery of the capers. Capers are grown uh, all over near the sea in the Mediterranean con- uh, countries. So, I mean, what are they exactly? Because there are so people who plant. don't know. Caper is uh, the re- uh, comes from a plant called the caper plant, and uh, it's a plant that it is, grows in the most strange uh, places, in uh, cracks of uh, walls, uh, wow. um, uh, in the strangest places, but it is also cultivated to these fruits uh, the, in, in, uh, in, in farms. Uh, so you have these lo- big lands of sand near the sea, 
and, they, and it's a plant that grows very, very low on the ground with uh, long rays of branches that uh, depart from the center. So it's big star on the ground. Really? Of green leaves, green, round, uh, thick, uh, and, uh, and almost shiny leaves. It's a beautiful plant. So they have these farms with all these plants uh, on the ground, and uh, the caper itself, uh, it's the bud that will become the flower of the plant. And then after the flower flowers, the result of the flower is the caper berry. So there are two different things that you have to differentiate. One is the caper, which is the bud, and therefore smaller than the next Step, the caper berry. It's hard to, to so the, the caper is very small. The Pantelleria capers are really small. And uh, then if, if you leave the caper on the plant, if you don't pick the caper, it becomes a flower. And again, it's a wonderful flower with uh, white uh, petals uh, and at the end of the petals, I mean, and violet ends of the wow. petals. It's a, a, with the pistils that come out. Really a beautiful flower. But only lasts one day and uh, to leave the flower on the plant which everybody does because it, if you if you pick up the flower it will not stay it will not last after a few days uh, it develops the berry the caper berry that in italian uh, are called cucunci caper berry or cucunci which so are bigger so that's interesting so they come from the same plant but at different stages in the development. Exactly. It is beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. Therefore, so the, uh, the, while the caper berry has a, little, a few seeds inside, so it's bigger, it's more, again, more capery, but it has a few seeds inside. Italians eat the caper berries like uh, as uh, an aperitif with your wine, perfect combination with uh, you eat an olive. Uh, it has uh, the big, uh, sh- uh, an elongated shape as an olive. So, in di- uh, so they they serve you your glass of wine uh, and uh, a little dish with olives and a little dish with caper berries. Wow! Now, typically, Beatrice, the berries and the caper buds themselves, they're preserved by being salted. Yes, usually the artisanal way to conserve the capers and the caper berry is in sea salt, in that coarse sea salt. Yes. And, uh, and the, what you see, the caper berry that you, or the caper that you buy at the store, is nothing done to the fruit or the bud. What they do, they pick the capers or the caper berry, they put them in a dark place, uh, dry, dark place for a few days under sea salt. So they start the the conservation of the product. They cure the product with sea salt from the beginning. So then after a month, they they move it, they turn the capers and caper berries, uh, turn it so that all the berries can get their good amount of sea salt. And then after a month, they just uh, package them with new sea salt. Oh, okay. So, the, so, so the, nothing is done from nature until you see it and you use it at home. Now, let, let me just erase another piece of confusion on my part then. Sometimes you see capers 
in grocery stores here in the United States, and instead of being in, packed in salt as you describe it, they're actually in salty water, so they're in a brine. brine. Yeah. Now that that's not as good a caper, is that right? It could be. It could be, but it might also be an indication of an industrial product. Okay, so so there is a or or vinegar sometime brine or vinegar or okay. olive oil. Okay. It could be an indication of an industrial product. If it is an artisanal, certainly. Uh, if uh, uh, a caper is uh, in sea salt, it certainly is an artisanal product. Uh-huh. And you want them uh, pulpy, you know. You don't you don't want them dry. You want you want all meaty. I rinse them. You do, oh yeah, yeah, you must rinse because that's the sea salt that you use for cons- co- co- to conserve the caper. Yes. But we all rinse, yeah. This is what you should do. But so I, I love them with fish. I know a lot of people don't think of that, but I just think they're wonderful for fish. Yes, they're wonderful for fish. They're wonderful. It's a finishing, mostly a finishing product. Uh, wonderful in salads. Uh, wonderful. We always make, uh, example, a farro salad. Farro grain salad, okay. and then uh, you you finish it with uh, with capers, that and great. it gives it another. You have tried ours, right, Anne? Oh yes, yes. I mean, yes. I'm I'm madly in love with these uh, kukuji things. She do- yeah, she, she doles them out a few at a time because she, she can't. <laughs> yeah, she can, she's frightened we might run out. Kunji, also you can use them to garnish finished products. Uh, they only perhaps if they are too big. Sometimes you just chop them up. Right. Example: I'm making tonight a botarga, a pasta with botarga. Yes. And and I did the sauce, this condiment that is. I mean, I love it because you serve it, you serve it raw, you don't cook anything. Everything is raw, raw and prepared in advance. And I, last night, I chopped capers and kukunchi for the condiment to go in the pasta with botarga. But now, you're, you, you sell botarga as well? Yes, we do, we do, we do. Right, is yours special? Cause I have, of course. You know <laughs> how I have pretty universal taste. Of one. I've never liked Botarga. I don't know why. I must be the only Italian in the world who doesn't like Botarga. But Botarga is, as is, is, is all the products from Italy, sometimes you, your conclusions are driven by having tasted a product that is not that great. Now yeah. is the time of panettone, and I cannot tell you how many people are telling oh, us, terrible. oh, I've never tasted a panettone. Right. I always hated them, but now, yeah. like everything, yeah. Botarga, we use Botarga from Sardinia, and right. and it's very delicate, fishy but delicate, and you just slice it very thin, and you put some extra virgin olive oil, parsley, pers- a few capers, and, and you then you dress the salad in a spectacular dish. It really is. So to tell you how many ways of using the capers you have. Uh-huh. Let me tell you a funny story, uh, Beatrice. We, we were in Australia in a restaurant just north of Sydney. Yes. In a place called Freshwater Beach. There's a restaurant there. The chef owner is from Sardinia. Yes. <laughs> and, and he started getting botaga from someone in Queensland, the, north, no, the yeah. northernmost state. And he said, it's really curious. He said, I think it's better than the Sardinian botaga that, that I import. <laughs> yeah. There are industrial concerns everywhere. Yeah. So there, uh, it, might, it might very well be that his uh, botaga is no, better no, than an industrial botaga from Cagliari in Sardinia. Uh, so Cagliari is the sort of the center of... Botaga production in it, in Italy? 
where the big companies are located in, in so Cagliari. Industrial okay. rather than okay. artisanal. But, but Ours, for example, is on the ponds of the Cabras Ponds, which is in the middle of Sardinia on the west. Oh, really? There are ponds, and, and it's an area that has been devoted to the catching of the fish and the working of the fish for centuries. That um, must be somewhere in the... Or, is it Oristano? Is it Oristano, okay. Oristano, yes. And uh, they have been working the Botarga again for centuries so that they have... They, they, they do it as the ancient uh, Sardinians uh, used to do the botarga, or they even like with the, put a stone on the fish. You know what botarga is, right? Yes. Oh, botarga yeah, is the, yeah. the egg roll yeah. of uh, the mullet fish yes. in that case. You can have botarga of any fish, or tuna fish. Or, so you, it's the egg what? roll that is dried yeah. very carefully. So depending on how you do it, and how much, how, how well you dry it. For example, I have been told that uh, unscrupulous people do not dry enough the botaga, and therefore it weighs more. It's oh, yeah, still fresh the when you get it. It's not a dry product, so it weighs more, and they make more money, I for see. example. So, yeah. Something else just occurred to me, then better why people prepare swordfish with capers. Yes. Because swordfish is the main catch in Trapani, yes. which, which is close to Pantelleria. So I guess yes, that's why, they, it's so that's why great, they put it together. It, it, exactly. And as Anna was saying before, I mean, with fish, it's fantastic. They keep it. If you just do a grilled fish, just simple grilled fish, and then you prepare a condiment again with extra aging olive oil, some parsley, a few drops of uh, lemon, and you add uh, a few capers or chopped caper berries. A simple grilling fi- grill, grilled fish becomes a masterpiece. But you use the condiment and you don't cook it in with the fish. Prepare it separately and then serve it with the fish? Yeah, uh, I do. I know. Uh, I think that you can cook with capers as well, but not too much. I mean, if it's a quick. It can be overwhelming. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Be, be a yes. teacher. And while we're talking about what you handle, let our listeners know a little bit about your company, Gustiamo. Now, you and your partner, Martina, Martina. um, are Italy-born and living in the U.S., and and you decided to start this company because you didn't have access to these wonderful artisanal products that come from Italy. So you started this company, and you actually personally explore all of Italy to find the best artisanal products, and then you offer them for sale in the United States. Is that it is correct, right. We started 12 years ago. We are located in the Bronx. We very particular in uh, our selection. We try to select the best, uh, the most honest, uh, the artisans uh, all over Italy. In um, Whatever artisans can provide us with the best product, uh, this is what we select without compromises. Now, you have a website. We have is. a website, and the, the name of the website is gustiamo.com. Right, and you have a full lineup of all your products there? We do. We carry in our warehouse, so we do take care of all uh, uh, 360 degrees of the, the whole operation from selecting, as we were saying before, to the packing and uh, shipping to our customers. And again, I mean, it, we, if it is not an artisanal product, we will not import it. But our work is not only in the selection part, but also in the making sure that uh, these, the farmers, the producers, the families do uh, keep 
doing their job as they keep the high standards that we want. So everything that is sold uh, on our website is of the best quality that you can find. And these are beautiful people. I mean, these are the the people who make these products is what we say that are our heroes. So so easy sometimes to, for example, in capers to use attracted by easy profits or more profits and add uh, a bad sea salt, a bad salt, an industrial salt. It uh-huh. would change the quality of the product that is made. Uh, while if you add to the process instead an expensive uh, real sea salt from, uh, from Trapani, the, the sea salt also comes from Trapani, from the salt tanks near Trapani, in Mozia, so it's more expensive, but the, the, the flavor that... But back one second to the capers, one thing that I wanted to remind you who have tasted these wonderful capers is how difficult... You might have... Uh, these capers are expensive, I don't remember exactly. They, they, you know how these plants are on the ground, and they use people, so these they, they big... Uh, they, you, they, the capers picking period is in the summertime. You start picking capers like mid-July, depending on uh, how the weather is. And th- where you pick capers in the Pantelleria Island, since we're talking about them, it's uh, very hot in the summertime. Okay. So they have to do, they have to wake up very early in the morning or go uh, picking it very late in the afternoon because otherwise during the day you cannot stay outside. With, and, and you pick the capers on the ground practically because they, they, the caper uh, bush uh, grows on the ground. That's uh, not not easy on the back. I imagine exactly. <laughs> it's a terrible job. Yes, it's a terrible job, and you have to go to the same plant several times during the season because uh, the buds keep producing, multiplying, well, as well as the caper berries keep multiplying. I mean, keep no over the season. So you, it's a two months season. Well, we love our caper berries and our, the whole concept of your operation. You know, I guess the first time we talked to you was years ago. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, and keep up the good work. And Thank you so and, much. And then I just wish that all of our listeners would go on your website to see what's missing if they haven't been before with all the wonderful products. And they all come with a guarantee of integrity from you and Martina, which is something much appreciated. Thank you so much. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And now a uh, short, or rather, I guess a long voyage um, from Sicily back across the Atlantic um, and to South America, um, Brazil, which is a large and very diverse country. And we're talking to our friend Fernando Sofer of Apex Brazil, um, which exports a lot of the many, many products um, that are coming out of Brazil. And uh, we're going to talk to him about some of those specialties. Fernando Sofer, um, you are in Miami uh, organizing and representing uh, Apex Brazil. What is Apex Brazil? 
Uh, Apex Brazil is the Brazilian Trade and Investment Promotion Agency. Okay. And we are a non-profit government uh, agency that works uh, towards promoting exports out of Brazil, the internationalization of Brazilian companies, as well as attracting foreign direct investment into Brazil. And we work through, like, with many different industries, more than 70 industry sectors in Brazil, and uh, doing, like, trade shows, uh, business matchmaking, trade missions. Uh, we do, like, organize some trips from buyers to Brazil, and also qualifying companies, training them to be more, you know, effective when they're, they're exporting. And you were in the States uh we are in the States. You were in New York for the uh, Summer Fancy Food, um, uh, and you had show, and, and you had a very large exhibit. Yes, we had. A, we had. A, I won't say large, but it was a fairly sizable uh, exhibit. We had thirty-four companies, and uh, that were there during the day, the three days, and uh, this is the third year that we're. They're directly involved in doing that. Uh, we do that together with the Brazilian consulate, uh-huh. where we we know we provide you know the area, and also the whole uh, the the booth setup, and also do the arrange. The, we go after the companies, qualify the companies that uh, want to participate, that they have the capability to participate in such an important show in the United States. Okay. Now, um, I guess what we're going to really talk about is what are the big Exports, the big products and and production, and going on in Brazil, and also if you could give us trends, because I understand that uh, there are some changing directions for some of your products, such as coffee, um, chocolate. What what are the big products? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big products in Brazil, it's like recognized and uh, has like a, a very strong production. It's Coffee, as you mentioned, some a lot of people don't know, but coffee. Brazil is the, the largest coffee producer in the world and also the largest exporter. But a lot of people don't know that because actually, and we recognize that our brand, the Brazil brand, Brazilian coffee brand is not that, you know, that strong. But a lot of the coffee that everybody drinks in America, a lot of that comes from Brazil, actually. Exactly. But it goes like to a, like a, a roaster here in the United States that put their own brand in there. Right. And we end up uh, drinking that. But also we're huge producers of rice, of soybeans, and, uh, and other, like, uh, everything that has to do with fruits and vegetables. We're really rich in that. And, uh, and we're, you know, and, and, and a lot of that, it's commodities. But we want to, you know, a little bit. Commodities, they, they get, you know, business by, by themselves. So they don't need a support. Right. But I want to know about... I want to know about some of your, uh, your, uh, um, what do you call it, artisanally produced, um, yes, Cambria, yes. Cambria. Cambria. Yeah, talk yeah, about, call, tell us big about that. Producer. Yeah. They, you know that they are, they are, they roast no, they also. Are the they roast. They they do their own roasting and stuff. They just don't they don't just sell yes. their beans. Yes, and a lot of companies are going through that uh, trend right now. You know, bringing their own brand, doing their own product, then trying to already bring their product with already it's with their own brand to the United States. So it's going to aggregate more value on that. And Cambrai is one of many that are doing that. 
and also uh, the, we're we even organizing now a trip of uh, the buyers from all over the world to Brazil to see farms to see you know uh, the quality of Brazil brand in terms of coffee. And Combrian, actually, they already have representatives here, as many other coffee producers already have. So they're already changing that uh, perception and trying to change that business model of just exporting, you know, the green coffee directly to the United States. They actually roasting that in Brazil, uh, branding that, packaging, and selling with their own brand here in the United States throughout retail stores and everything else. And that's where we see it. We have we have more value on that. And also we have chocolate, as you mentioned. Yeah, also chocolate, chocolate with, yeah. yeah, and chocolate, you know, chocolate per se, it's not that different, but Brazil and a lot of producers and chocolate are doing their, they're incorporating, you know, nuts and, and seeds and also fruits that are typical from, from Brazil. Then it creates something a little bit different. We can have chocolate with acai, with, uh, with other nuts that are typical from Brazil. And then uh, also because we were one of the largest producers of cacao in the world as well. You know, the cocoa beans and everything. Yes. So we, we have the source right there. So it's the, the extremely high quality chocolate. And also that we already have seen an increase of producers for this more art, artisanal, crafty chocolate coming into the United States and other parts of the world as well. But they're making it into gourmet bars. Right. Yes. Little bars and bigger yep. bars. No, they 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 actually sell like in the like regular bars. Right. Not that it can be that. But they're producing. What Peter's getting at is that you're actually creating the final product in Brazil, yes, yes. as opposed to. Sure. And what are some of the names for our listeners to look for in chocolate? Uh, it's Nugali. It's. Uh, Irma, it's um, what else? Uh, we have uh, Docili, we have uh, what's the name of the other company that also is doing some good business? Mwagi Bauer, Nugali, Nugali, yeah, they were present at the show. Yeah, they were big. Huh? The, the, the Summer Fancy Shoot, yeah, they're, they're, and actually, they, I think uh, during the show, they had, there was another event in New Jersey, and they. they I don't know exactly which prize they won, but they won like a tasting prize. They were competing from chocolates all over the world. It was like a satellite event from the summer fancy food. So they're very also they're a very great company, and and that's a that's a trend. We're not just exporting the cocoa beans and everything. We're actually producing the the the, the final product. We know with the, the different package and everything that's translating well. And also telling a story behind that, that production to the U.S. consumer. Now we we met this product called Asai, the Asai berries, several several ago, and we, and we and we really love those. Now they 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 come from the Amazon part of Brazil. Yeah, it's the northern part of Brazil. There's part of the Amazon. It's usually most of the production happens in a state called Para, P-A-R-A. So um, that's a trend already in Brazil for like at least 10 years. And now, and in the beginning, it was a lot of uh, exporting and the, the actual, uh, they were just eating the fruit like in a bowl or something like that with some more ingredients. Now, actually, if we're seeing some uh, 
variations of that same product uh, becoming like yogurt, ice creams, uh, snack bars, and being incorporated into into uh, the fruit juices, into vinegars, into chocolate. Yeah, and that's a super fruit, you know, because even like the taste, it's a little bit strong. So what they're doing is just incorporating some other also natural products, but also they're, you know, becoming a little bit more palatable, you know, for the for the regular consumer to use that. And it's a very, it's a healthy product, actually. Yeah. But acai is huge, yeah. Yeah, se- several years ago, we met a famous Brazilian chef. Oh, yeah, called, Alex. Called Alex. Atala. Alex Atala. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. I interviewed him in London, actually. Yeah, he, he was doing interesting things with the native populations in the Amazon uh-huh. area. Is that, is that kind of thing still going on? Or? I believe so. I believe so. I, I'm not, I don't have like a, any touch with him or anything like that. Yeah, okay. but as far as I know, yeah, that's one of the things that he's famous for. You know, incorporating like uh, native uh, Brazilians, uh, you know, uh, gastronomy into like a more like high-end, uh, you know, uh, cuisine, and that's one of the main reasons why he is so famous about it. And uh, he continues doing that. Now, how much support do you get from your government for expanding the outside market? Yeah, that's we like I said, we are, we are. A government agency, so we have like a budget pretty much to, you know, help companies not only to do business here in the United States, but also to be better qualified even production-wise in Brazil. We have a series of programs that we go to the factories and train the companies, almost providing like a consulting job. So they have like the capability to be more like, uh, you know, qualified in exporting their goods in terms of packaging, in terms of uh, pricing, logistics, and everything, so it can be ready for the market. And then we, in, in Brazil, we have like a lot of programs that actually do that. You know, they, they want to make the companies better, better industry-wise and better, like, produ- better producers, having more quality products. Because Brazil is a huge domestic market, that's the thing. You know, they have a, like a huge population. A lot of uh, there's a there's a huge uh, you know industry right there. So, but sometimes you need to adapt for the for the overseas market, and then that's yeah. a lot of what is, we do. Is that what this is about? With uh, the the information on uh, one of these products, uh, the Sabor des Indians. Yeah, what is that? Is that um, the hot peppers and stuff? Is that Indian, native Indians to uh, Brazil, or is it referring to um, East Indians? No, 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 from Brazil. From Brazil. They use, like, uh, natural products from, like, uh, from the native uh, forest and everything, but it's all, like, farm. You know, it's all farming and everything. It's not, like, extracting anything like that. They just use like, uh, just like, just the name. It's a flavor from India's, you know, something like that. So, but that's, it's not from East Indian or like, it's from like native Brazil. So okay. that's one of the things and they, they, uh, the, they And the do. packaging, you have a lot of, um, like, um, it looks to me like Mandarin and Chinese characters and stuff. 
because they export there. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. They export so there. That's why. Market then for Brazilian products. Yes. China? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because. No. Yeah, could be. Yeah, and some of them, yes. No, for net. It's for not. Net. Yeah, I think it's a market that's that's uh, trains growing right now. You know, it used to be. Was not to be, but some of uh, some of Brazilian producers, especially on the agriculture and uh, beverage and everything, they're starting to export to China as well. Now, when when we were in Peru, but coming from the Amazon, we saw a fish called paiche. 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 Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really funny looking fish. Very, big fish. Very, very big, but with a very small head and a very small tail. And when when uh-huh. we came when we came back. To the United States, we discovered that Whole Food Markets, where we do some of our shopping, they were they were actually selling farm-raised paiche, and, pre- mm-hmm. and pre- mm-hmm. presumably, I mean, it's a it's a freshwater fish that lives in the Amazon. Is is anything like that going on in Brazil? Yes, yeah. There's a lot of uh, actually farm, especially like uh, native like Amazon fishes. That already have uh, they already created farms to export and also it's uh, sustainable and all that so it's also easier it's not like a wild catch fish so yeah that's going on like uh, piraiba and also other fishes yeah no that's already a trend also but uh, it's been happening for the last couple of years okay so so So, I mean we're talking about trends I mean what do you see as the major shift in focus of of this. The products from uh, marketing and expanding the market for Brazilian products. I think I think it's, that's uh, I think that's the focus on a natural and organic products. You know, that's where we see the biggest trend and where we see the biggest uh, I would say opportunity for Brazilian products here because uh, we 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 can produce anything. We have productions anything. You can produce cookies. You can produce milk. You can produce. Uh, you know, uh, candy. Brazil also it's very huge in candy, but I think it's the appeal for the Brazilian cuisine and gastronomy and all that. It will be on the natural products, or at least that that has a more like uh, healthy, you know, uh, healthy content. Being juices, Brazil it's huge in juice juice production and all, and also in all, all these other spices, peppers. Uh, yeah, there are a lot yeah. of resources in yeah. Brazil. Lots and lots of resources. I think it's a matter of getting the uh, the culture and economy organized to get these yeah. products out there and get the recognition for it. And you have so many Correct. issues to deal with with poverty. How do uh, how do you work this in for all this the um, the people who need employment? Are you doing that with your products? Um. I, well, I think most of the companies try to do that. That's that's a very that's a very complicated question to answer to, like in a simple answer. Oh, no. Because yes, but uh, yes, but I think uh, a lot of uh, companies, especially newer companies and even some traditional ones, they have like a social, uh, you know, uh, understanding of what needs to be done and then trying to. To make like inclusion, you know, part of it, and uh, providing. There's a lot of cooperatives as well, you know, uh, a lot of companies that uh, they source products from uh, people that, uh, or they, or they're farming and they provide some some share of their profits for these communities. I don't know. I cannot give you like an example right now, but uh, there's a lot of that going on in Brazil. 
you know, and um, and uh, there's a, also a lot of uh, some people don't know that, or sometimes they don't have the right idea. But there's a lot of concern, and there's a lot of protection with the environment. You know uh, what? It yeah, you have to fight for as sustainable as possible. Yeah, you have to fight for every inch very, to preserve the Amazon. It's a, and that's not, yes. yeah, that's from outsiders for the most part. Um, yeah. Yes. So you you've a lot of work ahead of you, Fernando, and you sound yes. like you're really yes, so excited right. about it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, I am. But we, what we can do here, it's a, it's a small part of a whole thing. But uh, we still believe like Brazil has a great potential here. You know, it, and it was like uh, it wasn't being being uh, used, I think, in the right way. But we're trying to create some buzz. We're trying to create some. Uh, Excitement because we see the potential of these companies. We see the quality of these products that are coming in right now, and I think that 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 trend is going to continue. You know. Well, we, we wish you the very best. You have some wonderful spokesmen like Marta and Pele. Maybe you can. <laughs> oh yes! Oh yes! Yeah. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe you can sign them up to help them sell more Brazilian. In in the meantime, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on, on the menu today and for the information that you provided to us. And we wish you the very best okay. of good fortune. Thank you. Perfect. Thank All you. right. Thank you very much. You guys have a great day. Thank, thank you very you, much. Fernando. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, sweetheart. That's the end of today's quick yeah, We, we really made a lot of interesting, nice we, we people. We do. We do. We do indeed. And the food, the food industry is full of nice people. Yep. And so is the drink industry too. And and we're a part of that too. And we all have a good time together. And we'll be having a good time, same place, same time next week, as long as you join us then. So what do we say in the meantime? Bye-bye.